Well, good morning. Uh, thank you for joining us here today. I'm pleased to announce Idaho will enter the final stage of our Idaho Rebounds Plan to safely and responsibly open our economy in stages on Saturday. You'll get the details in a few minutes. All along, our focus has been to protect the health and safety of Idahoans and preserve healthcare capacity while ensuring a strong economic rebound so that we can restore prosperity we had just months ago. Our collective efforts to abruptly slow the spread of coronavirus back in March and April worked very, very well. By the end of April, we saw a consistent leveling off of new cases. There was no other way to effectively so, slow the spread of this deadly disease in our state without the actions that we took together. The no action alternative would have been a catastrophe and ultimately would have led to deeper economic fallout than we're experiencing today. We've taken many steps to alleviate the hardship caused by this global pandemic. Earlier this week, I joined mayors, county commissioners, my partners in the legislature in announcing Idaho will leverage our federal coronavirus relief funds to cover local public safety salaries and ensure that no reductions in public, no reductions of public safety during these unprecedented challenges. At the same time, we're giving cities and counties the opportunity to pass on savings to property taxpayers. The move is expected to result in $200 million in one-time property tax relief. That could mean a 10 to 20% reduction in your property taxes this year. We led the nation in our support of small businesses making a 30-day supply of scarce personal protective equipment available to them and directing millions of dollars in rebound grants to more than 5,000 small businesses in Idaho. We listened to businesses large and small and were offering return to work bonuses to get folks off unemployment and back to work safely. The jobs are coming back, but businesses tell me that they're having a hard time recruiting employees. The return to work bonuses are based on a basic conservative principle. We much prefer people working and contributing to our economic velocity to people collecting unemployment. Work strengthens not just the individual and their family, but all of society. However, most Americans out of work due to the coronavirus earn more with enhanced unemployment benefit than their normal wages, a program is expected to expire in seven weeks. The return to work incentive will get folks back to work now, which helps get our economy going, something that benefits all of us and saves taxpayer dollars in the long run. President Trump, White House officials, and congressional Republicans are looking at similar programs on the federal level. The reason we can direct our relief, our federal relief dollars back to taxpayers is because all along we have governed conservatively. We put money into savings, we maintain a balanced budget, we don't incur long-term debt for government operations, 
and we keep agency budgets accountable and lean. On Saturday, 100% of businesses will be able to open their doors as we enter stage four of our Idaho Rebounds Plan. That means visits to senior living centers and other congregate facilities can resume under strict protocols to protect residents and workers. Nightclubs can operate with diminished standing room occupancy. Large venues, such as sporting events, can operate under limited phys uh, physical distancing protocols. Employers can resume restricted, unrestricted staffing, but continue to practice physical distancing and sanitation. Special accommodations for vulnerable individuals should be made. Travel can continue to locations that allow it and do not have significant ongoing virus transmission. Gatherings of more than 50 can occur where six foot social distancing and precautionary measures are followed. I want to stress something very important. We almost did not make it to stage four this week. Despite our incredible progress, there are still some in Idaho who are not practicing measures to keep themselves and others safe. Even if contracting COVID-19 is low on your personal concerns, I urge you to practice safe measures to protect others. Community spread is occurring in more than half of the counties in our state. This isn't just a Boise and Treasure Valley issue. Across the country, we're seeing the virus move from cities into rural areas where healthcare access is limited. Our focus all along has been to prevent our healthcare facilities from being overrun in, this, in a short period of time. Something that would have had a devastating effect on our lives and our economy. The most effective way to mitigate the spread of virus is through our personal actions. Practice physical distancing. Wash hands and surfaces regularly. Wear protective face coverings in public where appropriate. And stay home if you're sick. Earlier this week, we unveiled the new One Idaho Initiative to educate the public on the importance of practicing these measures so we can continue our economic rebound. Our actions moving forward will help preserve the sacrifice we all made early on and continue to make to slow the spread of the coronavirus in our state. I encourage businesses and individuals to go to one.idaho.gov and make the One Idaho Pledge. I'm confident that with the continued support of all Idahoans, our economic rebound will happen more quickly and more robustly than any other place in the country and the world. Now, I'll let Dr. Hahn discuss the specific metrics for, of us moving into stage four, and then we'll take some of your questions. Dr. Hahn. Thank you, uh, Governor. As last time, I will go over the uh, metrics that we use to make the decision. And if you could look, uh, there are screens on either side of the room that um, you can, I'll be referring to while, we're, um, while I'm talking. Um, as I explained last time, we have tried very hard to build metrics. We started off with what the White House 
uh, reopening America uh, re plan recommended, and then we customized it for Idaho based on the data that we get and our, um, our ability to analyze it in a timely manner. So um, you'll see that's the basis of it. The starting point is to look at just how widespread is the virus? What are we seeing? Um, and you'll see at the top there, the number of cases by the date that it was reported to us. You can see there that we talk about a downward trend. It's barely downward. I think eyeball, it's very hard to see that. Um, and we did have a surge in early June. I'll talk about that in a second, why I think our cases went up uh, there. Uh, but we are, are concerned, as the governor mentioned, we are concerned that we may see more cases. And part of that is due to good news, which is that our testing has gone up dramatically. Um, you may have noticed on the website, for those of you that follow it, that our uh, number of tests jumped from four to 5,000 per week up to 10,000. Uh, in the last week of May. We think that's one reason why our case counts went up. We are simply testing more people. Um, and that is, we, were, we knew that could happen, and so that is one reason why we have a second measure to look at the widespread, uh, how widespread is, is the disease, which is the percent positive tests. So you can see there that the percent of tests that are being done out there, the percent positivity has actually been falling, um, which is a good sign. Um, partly, I think we are testing more people who are asymptomatic, which is what the, one of the recommendations is uh, from public health and national leaders, is that we should be testing people, screening people, for example, going into work, maybe going into health care, that type of thing. So we think this is a good reflection of more testing going on, um, and it is somewhat reassuring that we don't have a lot of um, a lot of disease out there that we are not detecting. We still have a ways to go with, with testing. We'd like to see um, at least 10,000 a week continue. Um, we are trying to meet, meet the federal goal uh, of testing 2% of our population per month. So we're headed in that direction. So we see that as a good sign. The next area we look at is the, what we call syndromic criteria. So this is looking at the reason what we, we talk about syndrome is these are people that are showing up in emergency departments and they we don't know for sure they have COVID, but they have an illness that is what we call COVID-like. And we're doing that because sometimes delay in testing, test results may take several days and we're trying to get a more real-time picture of what's going on in our emergency departments. So this reflects not only people who might be seriously ill with COVID, uh, which is very concerning, but also burden on our healthcare system. How many people are being seen in the emergency department and then the lower graph looks at how many people are actually admitted to the hospital from the emergency department. And you can see there uh, reassuringly that we are seeing a downward trend, not a very strong one though. We'd love to see that even farther as far as people coming in with that illness. Again, we can't say from this graph how many of those people actually have COVID, but we know that influenza, for example, is decreasing throughout the state. Other respiratory viruses are decreasing. So uh, we think this is probably a fair uh, picture of uh, illnesses that in many cases might be COVID. Our third area, uh, our last area that we look at is healthcare burden of the inpatient situation. How are hospitals doing? Uh, and we continue to see uh, good availability of ventilators and intensive care unit beds, as you can see in that in the uh, chart there. Um, the, you'll notice a slight drift downward in availability of ventilators and intensive care unit beds. And talking with the hospitals, um, that is not due to more people being admitted or being in the hospital with COVID. They actually have very few patients right now in the hospital with COVID. But these are people that are now that they've started to do uh, elective surgeries, 
um, that some of these people require short intensive uh, care unit care after their procedures and they are that is why we're seeing a little bit of a downward drift so uh, we are not concerned about that from the standpoint of that representing a increase in, in severe COVID cases and then you can see on the bottom of that page we have at least a 10-day supply of personal protective equipment for those hospital workers um, as of our latest snapshot on June 9th. Lastly, I'll talk about our healthcare workers, and this is another area that we felt that we really um, are a little bit concerned at some of what we were seeing. We saw an increase in healthcare workers reported. Uh, remember that healthcare workers include anybody that works at those facilities, so it could be um, uh, janitorial staff, it could be a nurse, it could be um, you know, a physician, it's, it's all sorts of people that work in these, in these settings. Um, when we looked at that data more carefully in early June, remember this coincides with our bump in testing, uh, a lot of that testing happening by hospitals of their workers. Uh, we found that this is not one particular part of the state or one facility, this is really scattered throughout the state and in many cases what the investigators found uh, was that these were actually healthcare workers that had actually uh, appeared to have gotten the infection not at work but in the community from a household member or other community spread. So um, even though we keep an, a close eye on this, uh, just keep in mind that healthcare workers getting infected does not mean they were infected on the job. Nonetheless, this is a trend we're worried about there and you can see there that that last criteria we had there we would like to see fewer than two healthcare workers t per day reported, and we actually would not have met, if that was our only criteria, we would not have met it uh, because we exactly had two, uh, two per day on average, so we can't consider that less than two. Uh, so that's, that's our metrics. Um, as the governor mentioned, we, we feel like we kind of squeaked under on this one, and um, so I just want to second what the governor said, that we are concerned we, we urge people to remember that to keep our economy open, we all need to do our part. We, it's, the disease is still here. It is still circulating in the state. Um, and um, it's nice to see everybody out there with a mask on. We really appreciate it. Um, and we urge people to continue to uh, physically distance from each other and to wear face coverings. Thank you. Thank you, doctor. Okay. Well, we, our goal all along was to meet, meet these. I mean, all our guidance, everything that was out there. And the, the last slide was the one that, uh, that we're right on the, on the edge on, but the, the real critical issue, the, our chart, our real critical issue is that red line. And in all reality, the, in other states, ICU capacity, uh, and, and hospital beds is really on the edge. And as Dr. Hahn alluded to, our, the use of our ICU capacity is not for COVID. That's the most critical, but that's why we aggregate all these other data. We, we made it, but, but we're not spiking the football. Uh, what, what I need your help, collectively, all of you, is to continue to send the message out to Idahoans about how important all those things that both Dr. Hahn and I talked about. That's it. You're going to have to ask, have Dr. Hahn answer that one. 
Sure, uh, Betsy, so we, um, if you go back to our previous metric, we start with the day after, if we can, we start with the day after that and do two weeks. And we, we had to pull that data um, yesterday morning uh, before, uh, as you know, we get reports every day and we, we summarize them during the day. So we made that call. I'm hoping that is going to turn out to be, you know, one spike and maybe we'll see a, a decrease after that. But that, that data will go into our next two weeks of measurement and we might decide that the healthcare worker problem is ongoing or growing and it might be enough to not get us forward. But, but the data that we looked at did show a decrease and we, we felt like we made it. So go ahead. Just last weekend we had two days of much higher increases among healthcare workers. How does that create a, a, a decrease in time in two weeks? I'm, I'm, yeah, I so. I my math, but I'm having trouble understanding. Yeah, Betsy, and I'm happy to, t I don't want to get too deep into it with everybody, but I'm happy to talk to you. I think probably what you're seeing, as you know, when we get a report to the state, we put it up there every day in, in, the, in the spirit of transparency, which is, new cases that we just heard about that day. So we call those date reported, I think notified the state, the date the state was notified is the term we're using now. But the date that it was reported, which is used for all of our metrics, is sometimes the local health department heard about it a day or two earlier. So the date reported may not match the date we hear about it. Sometimes the districts take a day or two to investigate. So I can't exactly speak to what you're speaking to because I haven't looked at those nine, I think you said nine yesterday. I haven't looked at those yet, seven, sorry. Uh, yeah, I don't want to inflate it, um, <laughs> for heaven's sake. Um, I haven't looked at those in particular yet, but um, this is where we try to be as transparent as possible. And as you well know, and we've talked about, um, what that means is that we're showing you data that can sometimes change or look different. We try to minimize that, but by showing you stuff quickly, it is going to, it's always listed as provisional and it can sometimes change as we learn more. And, and I. I'm happy to look at that with you and see what happened there. Um, but some of those might have been, again, reported to the district a few days earlier or even a week earlier. If it takes them a while to investigate it, we might not hear about it right away. I, I just can't speak to it more specifically without looking at it. The, I, I would add the one thing we did know uh, because we saw that is that it's, uh, it's not in one area. The healthcare workers are scattered around the state. Uh, uh, limits one, but go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Talking about the return to work incentives, do you know how much uh, how many people have signed up and how much money is spent? How much money would remain? No. In that? I, we can do these fast if they're like that. <laughs> uh, we've been hearing from Idahoans who have started back to work or plan to at some point this month. Uh, they've never received any federal or state unemployment benefits in their weeks and weeks of uh, being laid off. They've had to use some uh, savings or borrow or just do without. Uh, did the state and federal government fail these citizens? Uh, uh, Marissa's telling me I have to repeat the question. The, easier, the earlier one was easier. Uh, well, the question is about the number of people that uh, some of them have returned to work, uh, some of them haven't, that aren't getting benefits. Uh, once again, as I have, I think every time I've been asked about this, a, uh, yes, the state and federal government did fail. I readily admit that. I will tell you that we put um, people, uh, we put training, we put hardware, we put software, we put a call center, uh, we're changing rules, we're changing management. Uh, yesterday, I had two different meetings about it yesterday. We believe we're on a pathway uh, 
to, and I don't want to commit, uh, we believe we're on a pathway to have all these addressed in, uh, in a matter of weeks. And the numbers we were looking at two weeks ago was a matter of months. So uh, we made progress. I know that people are getting the benefits. The call center when it first started out just got absolutely slammed. Uh, the call center did. And, and a lot of these issues have to go to the federal level. Uh, there's guidance, mixed guidance coming from the federal government about how we confirm uh, uh, these, the employment of these people, uh, the, the people that, that are making the claims. There's the traditional unemployment who are in our system. And then there's the new uh, people, the pandemic uh, uh, program that aren't in our system. We have to build a whole new file on them. Originally, the feds said, oh, just let them self-certify and send the money out. Then they came back and said, don't. That's part of the problem. But, but Scott's question about did the system fail? Yes, it was overloaded. Uh, but Congress wanted to get this money out as fast as they could. Labor asked that it not be, they knew that all the state labor departments were gonna be overridden, but they had to put it somewhere. But I would say, yeah, the system failed. We have every intent of having it fixed. But I, my heart goes out to those people. Are, are, are there lessons learned? Oh, well, absolutely. What, some of the states that ha had done a better level of automating, uh, we're one of the only states where everybody files online. And so we, the filing was easy. But the problem is there's all these complex, there's 80 different issues that, that we have to address in some of these unemployment uh, claims. And if it was just a state program or even just a federal program, it would be easier. But they, those two programs conflict the many issues. But uh, I think we're going to get there. Some of the states had it more automated to where when you filed, you got a query back that said, this isn't right, this isn't right. We didn't have that in Idaho. And it caused a lot of phone calls to go back and forth on an overworked system, which went from only 1,000 claims to 30,000 in a matter of two weeks. Scott's last question is about the adjudicators. Um, uh, how's it going with hiring more adjudicators? How many adjudicators are there? And do you know how many claims each one is assigned to? Uh, we actually uh, are, the question is about adjudicators. And adjudicators is a technical uh, name for the people that really do the technical issue, that know all these 80 different issues, that know uh, how you confirm uh, that they that they weren't fired, how, how you confirm uh, that they aren't getting benefits in multiple states, how do you confirm that it isn't that it isn't a, a, a scam like some of the other states have gone where they ship millions and millions of dollars uh, to scam artists that are based overseas. Uh, those are all the, th and, and the adjudicators are skilled people, so you, I just can't hire a call center or hire people off the street without taking my trained adjudicators and having them lessen their throughput as they train the new adjudicators. But we've got a pathway, th we think we're gonna get there pretty soon, but I don't know how many adjudicators, we'll get back to you on that. Governor, what happens if the number of cases spike, especially among healthcare workers, does the state extend stage four? Is there a chance we go back you know, into phase three? Uh, there are, all options are on the table. Uh, if, you know, it's all dependent upon the magnitude of the spike, uh, the, the critical issue is that we have, uh, and, and we haven't even gotten to the blue bump. We didn't want 
the orange uh, uh, bell-shaped curve uh, because we've had, we've been able to address uh, these people in this issue. But if we get close to that red line, if we see a trend, if the statistics that Dr. Hahn alluded to, uh, there are lots of options. Uh, it, it probably won't be statewide if you're in Shoshone County uh, where you've yet to have one case and it's in the lower uh, or upper Snake River Valley, then it'll be more regional than it will be statewide. Uh, but but it's, it's all, uh, we have to have flexibility on how we address it and which particular metrics. But if we don't have enough healthcare workers or don't have enough ICU capacity, like some of the states are addressing right now, uh, it, it will, the response will be address the magnitude of the problem. Yes. Uh, question about um, stage four that, that concludes on June 26th. Do you see um, the state kind of staying in a stage four holding pattern after that or do you plan to lift stage four restrictions if the, the numbers are still decreasing over there? Well, Keith's question is uh, if, at, the, at the end of stage four, what next? Uh, you can go to uh, uh, Dr. Hahn and Director Jepson's uh, website and see all the guidance that's there. This, the, these, are all, these are all recommendations, guidance uh, that, that we didn't have in any of these, whether it be a church service, whether it be a, a long-term care facility, whether it be a restaurant, whether it be a movie theater, whether it be any of the items, and of course uh, the, the announcement and what's gonna take place Saturday are long-term care facilities, which we all know are some of the most sensitive uh, areas we have. All that guidance, all that direction is gonna stay in place and then it'll be adoptive. It'll be adoptive to new science we get from uh, the federal government. It'll be adoptive to how our testing is progressing. Are we addressing the testing desert? It'll, be a, it, it, it'll adapt to what we have done in tracing. So uh, the answer is at, the, at that termination date, stage four, there will still be a lot of guidance that we have out there, but the restrictiveness of it will be directly proportional to the behavior of businesses and individuals going forward to suppress the numbers going forward. So, Alyssa. Well, our, our, um, our one Idaho is, uh, is directed at a broad demographic, but uh, you bring up a good point that that is, uh, that is some of the areas that we, uh, that we talk about, uh, and that's why nightclubs are in stage four. Uh, that, that there's, there's no question about it, but we need your collective help, and, and, and that's a good suggestion. We'll, we'll look at, at directly targeting some message. There's some of it there, uh, but as we see those numbers come in, that's that's uh, good counsel and advice. That's so you. then I have a question for you about contact tracing. During your AARP call-in meeting, there was a caller who asked, how come contact tracing in Idaho doesn't include publicly announcing where a person who tested positive has been, what stores they visited on what days and so forth, so that all of us who were in the same place will know and can protect ourselves? And I didn't hear 
Justin explained, is very much just going to the person, asking who they've been in contact with, and then talking to those people about who they've been in contact with. But nobody knows who they were in contact with at the grocery store or in other public places where there are many people. How come Iowa has not taken that step as part of their contact tracing? Well, uh, as you, uh, the question is on contact tracing and, and, and what we do, and I'll let Dir Director Jepson talk about the, uh, uh, some of the details of it. Uh, but in other, particularly Asian countries, uh, it's, it's more tracking than tracing. Uh, our model that we've had uh, is, is predicated on uh, if, if you test positive, you have a lab, lab confirmed positive test, uh, where have you been, who have you been in contact with? Uh, and, and of course, as the science evolves, uh, it is, if you walk through a grocery store and, and don't cough on your neighbor and maintain, it's way different. Uh, I, I would submit that it's probably not a good idea uh, that everybody in the grocery store gets contacted and said uh, uh, there, was, there was someone there and, and to panic about it. So I'll let uh, uh, Director Jepson does a good analysis of how our, our tracing system works versus a tracking system uh, that exists in particularly Asian countries where the whole uh, concept of, of personal uh, private uh, security is different than it is here in the United States and particularly in Idaho. Thank you, Betsy, for the questions. I uh, appreciate that. Um, uh, just to answer the question directly, in, in the course of a uh, contact tracing, if the, that's done at the public health districts, and if in the course of that they determine that it's important to disclose a location where a person was, either because they can't track individuals or there might have been a, a risk of exposure, that will happen. Uh, and that actually is consistent with what we've done with other illnesses and foodborne illnesses in particular when we have a case uh, in a restaurant, for example. And just in case, in fact, this week we had a case uh, in the Bannock County area where a restaurant was mentioned where a worker had been infected and they publicly announced that that, um, that had been happened and if people had been to that restaurant to contact the, the public health district. So I want to assure you that we're going to do what we can as a public health in Idaho to let people know uh, if they've had an increased risk and what they can do about that. Um, and then on contact tracing, I would just, <clears throat> excuse me, just emphasize again that that's a, a voluntary activity where when somebody's been infected, um, uh, somebody from the public health district will call. Uh, they'll do two things. They'll help them um, understand what precautions they need to take to keep those around them safe until they recover, uh, as well as discuss who they've been in contact and where they've been so that the appropriate actions can be taken, which would be reaching out to those individuals that they've been in contact with, uh, letting them know that they may have been exposed. They won't reveal the identity of that person. They, we protect their privacy. Uh, and then we'll discuss with those contacts what the appropriate course may be, testing, symptom monitoring, isolation, or they're all good based on the situation. Uh, so that is, continues to be an important part of our strategy. As we move forward, uh, it's important that we have both testing and tracing so we can know exactly, uh, to the best of our ability, where the disease is and we can take those appropriate actions uh, with specific individuals or locations, as you've mentioned. I will just mention that when we started this uh, experience, we had about 23 contact tracers in the state, give or take a few, that are trained. We had a goal to get to 250 contact tracers 
by the end of May, we achieved that goal, and we have a goal to get to 540 contact tracers by the end of August. It's a very manually intensive work, uh, and we are, are on track to do that. I'm sure it is. <laughs> uh, I, I'm curious whether uh, the department is tracking deaths of despair, so suicide, um, overdose, alcohol-related deaths, and whether there's any coordination with either the local treatment centers or perhaps the Office on Drug Policy to address issues related to addiction um, and how to treat substance use disorders in a time of increased stress well, uh, the question is about uh, increases in the level of uh, behavioral health, behavioral health issues, and most importantly, behavioral health deaths. Uh, and I'll let Dave talk about it. I was on the, I had a call yesterday with the opioid task force, and and then two weeks ago I had a call with the uh, with the Supreme Court. As you, most of you are aware. Uh, we instituted a behavioral health council, which is the executive branch, the judicial branch, and, and the legislative branch, to look at the totality of, of uh, behavioral health issues. Uh, I emphasized to our opioid uh, working group yesterday about how important uh, their input is into uh, some of the activities we have. We know uh, that there's more stress uh, in a lot of areas, but and, and maybe uh, Dave can respond to this. One of the things that has been a, if there are any benefits, is our delivery of, of remote healthcare, of telehealth, and, and, and the delivery of telehealth in the behavioral health area. I was a bit of a skeptic, uh, but the evidence is compelling about how much, uh, how effective uh, the delivery of telehealth is. As you're aware, you may be aware, a lot of our uh, uh, telehealth was because I waived some uh, rules at the state level and the federal government waived some rules. We're trying to aggregate those rules so that when we get out from under the emergency order, we can continue with the efficacy of that. But I'd let Dave address it. Uh, thank you, Melissa, for the great question. Uh, clearly, the pandemic has created extra stress on everyone, uh, including all of us here in this room, actually. And uh, that's led to an increase, uh, as far as we can tell, in certainly anxiety and potentially depression and other behavioral health issues. Uh, it's something we've been concerned about from the very beginning. Um, we do track the, uh, the death data, and it clearly any, in, even one suicide is too many suicides in the state. But we actually have seen a slight decline in suicides over the last couple of months, which is, is, is surprising to us, but a good thing. We'll take that whenever we can get that. Uh, we do continue to monitor the health of individuals. Uh, we have stood up a crisis health line that's staffed by the um, Behavioral Health Division at the, the department. It's 24-7, and individuals can access that uh, either through 211 or through the, uh, the coronavirus uh, 800 hotline, or it might be 88, but the coronavirus hotline that's on the website. Um, and that's available for individuals that may need access to immediate help or a direction to services that are available. Uh, through, as the governor mentioned, um, throughout the pandemic, through his uh, executive order action and waiving of rules, we've been able to greatly expand the use of telehealth. Uh, I was just looking at that data this morning, and for behavioral health, 
the same time period, it, this is in Medicaid, uh, uh, for the same time period, March, April, and May, last year we had roughly about 450 telehealth visits. Uh, the, uh, the, in this last period of time, we've had 53,000 telehealth visits in the last three months. Uh, and that's actually expanded to include substance abuse uh, as well as just not, not just your normal counseling. So uh, we will get back to both telehealth and normal visits as appropriate. Uh, it's very important to us to stay on top of helping the citizens of Idaho manage the behavioral health side of this, um, and we'll continue to focus on that. You, absolutely, uh, we, you know, we'll look at all of them, both the federal uh, rules and, and Dave can talk about this, uh, but, the, but the ones that we waived, uh, but what, what's, you know, Director Jepson deals with Medicaid and Medicare, uh, private uh, providers, whether it be a business that provides the benefit uh, uh, to their employees or the carriers in Idaho, have all been very, very uh, 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 helpful in expanding telehealth in Idaho. It's, we went, and, and Dave may know the numbers, we went from being one of the lowest states in telehealth to one of the highest in a very short period of time. But it was a combination of, of our hospitals, of our providers, of, of the people that pay for insurance, uh, of, of the department, of everybody collectively uh, addressing uh, what we always knew we had in Idaho, which is really shortage of healthcare. You know, we've got, uh, we talk about testing deserts, we've got healthcare deserts. We've got a lot of Idaho where there isn't a lot of healthcare. And that, that puts me into another issue of uh, one of our recommendations that I think I signed yesterday is uh, about $50 million more into expansion of broadband because whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, uh, whether it's business, whether it's any of those, these areas that don't have broadband, we're going to leverage those federal dollars with other dollars to try and expand that, and telehealth will be a big beneficiary. Did I miss anything, Dave? Okay. Joey. I wanted to talk about the senior living facilities and allowing visitors to come back in. Are those protocols going to come from the state, or are they going to have to come up with them themselves? And then what, what are those protocols going to look like to protect the uh, residents and the well, there. Uh, I'll let Dave talk about the specificity of it, but you know, it is critical. That's one of the questions early was about going into stage four. That was one of the areas that were really, uh, you know, people's access to their loved ones in these healthcare facilities. The mental health of these people in these healthcare facilities is very, very important. So uh, there's. I was talking to. Uh, I was on a call with some other governors. And they were talking about what they were doing in other states. And uh, I said something to Director Jepson, and, and they're working on it. But he can talk about the specificity of the guidelines for a long-term care facility. Uh, yeah, the, we will issue uh, state-level protocols and guidance, just like we have with many other um, categories. That'll be up today. Uh, it's been reviewed by the, uh, the, the we have a long-term care uh, strike team that we've had since the beginning who's helped us to craft that that's made up of both professionals in the industry uh, and uh, public health officials as well. Uh, we've gotten feedback from all the public health districts um, and had input frankly from families and others as we've thought about that. 
Uh, that guidance will be up uh, later, to this, probably shortly after this uh, press conference, uh, to help those facilities know how to manage that. It remains a concern of ours. Um, we know that a, a case within a long-term care facility can be devastating. Uh, so that protocol, I want to be clear that we will not be opening the doors and business as normal on Saturday. Uh, those facilities will have very clear guidelines and approaches to both keep those residents and staff safe, uh, as well as those that are visiting. Um, and it will include uh, protocols of sanitation and uh, specific places to meet um, and leveraging outside, frankly. If the weather's good, that's the best place to have some of those and possible for the resident uh, to have some of those visitations take place. Uh, we are simultaneously nervous about that as well as excited about that because we know that for many of these families it's been a long time since they've been able to have direct contact with their family members. So we would just ask those that have uh, individuals in long-term care facilities to please respect those protocols. They're there to protect your family member and you, uh, but we want to have a path for you to get back into some regular contact. Betsy. Uh, well, we consider everything, uh, but they are such a sensitive population. I mean, uh, uh, people in mass incarceration, whether it be jails or prisons, and people in long-term care facilities are where you see, you know, the most uh, disproportional impact from uh, the coronavirus. So that was why it was uh, moved into the, the latter stages. And, and it is in, the, in this last stage, uh, but, but collectively over time, uh, that, that uh, emotional uh, uh, distancing of people with their loved ones uh, starts to have a counteracting effect. What's, what's changed all along is our, is our testing capacity, which was really critical. Uh, uh, Director Jepson, uh, we are up to where we can do uh, perhaps 20,000 uh, test a day if we need to. So if, if we have a, a run in a, particularly in a community where we have multiple long-term care facilities, we have got to have testing and tracing capacity. So the growth of those two tools that we need made it to where we could open the long-term care facilities up. I think that answers your question, doesn't it? Well, it's, uh, uh, well, I guess some certainty uh, is a relief, but, you know, uh, most people, and I was in that camp, thought that the final outcome was not going to be great, and I, I feel terrible for, uh, for the family and the community over there, and, but some certainty is, you know, is probably somewhat of a relief, even though it's a sad, sad, sad day for Idaho. Uh, physical distancing at places like sports venues, what is that going to look like necessarily? I know Boise Hockey, 
Hawks still are undecided if they're going to have this season or not. What would that look like if they did decide to play um, some games? Well, we'll be issuing guidance on it, but it, it really uh, it's, it's pretty universal. Uh, you know, you're here in the NBA and the uh, uh, professional uh, baseball. It's, you know, where are those points in, in a venue? And a lot of it's the entry point and the exit point. Uh, the bathrooms, which are always an issue, whether they be in our parks and playgrounds uh, in Idaho or whether they be at one of those venues. Obviously, uh, any of the concession areas, uh, those are all being addressed. And it doesn't matter whether it's uh, a, a, a semi-professional baseball, uh, a Boise State football game, a rodeo, uh, the protocols that, that we've tried to emphasize over and over and over uh, that we have here are, are going to be necessary in those areas. All those sacrifices that everybody made in Idaho are dependent upon the collective compliance of people, whether they're going to the grocery store or whether they're going to a, a, a hockey game. Outdoors is always better than indoors, uh, but, you know, a common mixing points for people to uh, go in. What do you do about capacity? It's just like restaurants. So. It's, it's not uncommon from all the other things. It's that common denominator of, uh, of that spacing between you and I uh, to where if, heaven forbid, one of us coughs or sneezes, uh, that we've got a face covering on and that we're, we're maintaining those distancing. So it's, it, it's, it's common with everything else. I can't, the one thing that we had to open right from the health, from the beginning were healthcare and people's ability to, to eat uh, grocery stores. Let's see. One, one more? Okay. Well, uh, yes, uh, and it goes back to the question about sport venues. Uh, if you've got a workplace where people, uh, where you've got the higher level of, of hygiene and you need the people back there, but if you've got a place where work can be done efficiently uh, from home, uh, you should do that. It's all about minimizing transmissible mo moments in the transmission. Uh, but for the most part, uh, uh, people can get back to work, but all these protocols that we're talking about are so important, and if you're the employer, you've got a huge incentive to make sure that your the, the behavior of your employees, uh, not only for the sake of the employees, but the sake of your customers, is safe, and that all these other protocols are followed. And I, and I just want to end by emphasizing that one more time, uh, that, that at this point in time, uh, it is really critical that everybody in Idaho be part of this team uh, to, to modify their behavior. Uh, I am convinced uh, that if we do that, uh, just like after the 2009 recession, Idaho will lead the nation and the world in their economic rebound. But it is dependent upon each and every one to practice uh, that good behavior uh, so that we can manage this until we either get a good therapeutic or a vaccine. So, with that, thank you all very much.